0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's great, great to be here with you today. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Jake Box, and I'm the lead pastor here at Midtown Church. And uh, so glad that you've uh, weathered the weather and came here and and all that stuff, especially if you're exploring Christianity and you're checking out to see, you know, who is Jesus and if what the Bible says about who he is and what he's done is true. We hope that uh, you find that Midtown Church is a place where you are safe to ask questions, safe to explore, and helped along the Way. And in fact, the series that we are beginning today uh, it should be helpful towards that end. And I'm really excited about it because we're, we're starting a series that we're calling the, the Bible Story in which we are tracing the overall story of the, of the entire Bible in the course of four weeks. And uh, it, that is going to be fun. <laughs> it should be a lot of fun. We're going to cover a lot of ground. But uh, it should be a lot of fun. And it might be news to you to hear that there's an overarching storyline to the entire Bible. Uh, Often we think about the Bible more like a a rule book, you know, or like a a guidebook that's full of, you know, helpful teachings and some interesting stories, some uh, confusing Bible stories. However, uh, you know, there really is a uh, a common theme and an overarching story that the whole Bible tells. The Bible isn't all about just what we uh, need to do But the Bible ultimately is a story about who God is and what he has done for us. And the series is going to uh, try to highlight that and draw that out uh, for us. And so uh, let me just make a quick aside this morning, and that's this. that It's worth saying that here at Midtown Church, uh, we have made an intentional uh, decision to teach from the Bible uh, each week. And we believe that uh, the Bible is the inspired Word of God and that it's useful and that it's profitable, that it's helpful, and that it's relevant to our lives uh, today. Now, I realize that that belief uh, might surface or resurface uh, some questions that you might have in regards to the Bible and whether you can actually agree with us. And uh, what we think the Bible is without having to check your intellect at the door. And we understand that. We want you, to, again, just to reiterate, this is a place where you can explore that. And we want to invite you to ask the hard questions about the Bible. And is it trustworthy? Is it reliable? We also want you to know that we've come to the conclusion where we are today by asking those same hard questions. And seeing, like, as we looked at this and explored, that the Bible is reliable. And that it is Trustworthy. But again, we want you to feel invited to explore that and to ask those questions. In fact, this series that we're starting today lines up with something unique that we're doing in our small groups during the week. We call them our Midtown Communities or MCs. And we are uh, beginning this, this week having a conversation on the topics that we're discussing. And it's an open forum for us to discuss openly what we believe about this, and what's informed our thinking in that, and for us to learn from each other. If that's something you'd be interested in, and again, a safe place to explore and ask questions, we'd love for you to join us in that. And uh, if that's something you want to do, then on the connection card that you received, there's a box that, that says, I'm interested in Midtown communities. Just check that box, and we'll follow up with you this week and help you get connected to a group where you can come and meet people and ask those kind of questions, and it should be a whole lot of fun. But anyways... I have to say that we we do believe that the Bible is incredibly helpful, and one reason why we believe it is is because we believe its story helps explain each of our own personal stories. Because if you think about it, life you know, really comes at us like a story, doesn't it? You know, it, it comes to us the way that story does, uh, scene by scene. Uh, um, it's like a drama. You know, each day has a beginning and an end, it's full of all sorts. Of characters, It takes place in all different types of settings. And a year goes by like a chapter in a novel. And sometimes it seems like a tragedy. Sometimes it feels more like a comedy. But mostly it feels like a really long, drawn-out soap opera, right? And that there's sometimes some really beautiful things happen. You know, you, you, you meet someone, you fall in love, uh, or you find something that you're really passionate in doing, and you feel like you just kind of come alive when you're doing it. And then other times, uh, there's this incredible uh, tragedy. You know, you, you get sick or your loved one gets sick or, or, you know, you fall out of love or perhaps someone falls, you know, out of love with you. Or that work that you used to come alive doing, now instead of giving you life, it, it feels like it's just, you know, taking your life and robbing you of, of life. And, and, you know, the story it, it's sometimes beautiful, sometimes Horrible, oftentimes just a, a kind of confusing mixture of both, you know? And you're like, man, what, what is this that I'm in? Like, what, what's going on all around me? I love what John Eldridge says. Uh, he's a Christian author who wrote a book on this topic. And he, he says this He says, Life often feels like we're holding in our hands some pages torn out of a book. These pages are the days of our lives. They're fragments of a story. They seem important, or at least we long to know that they are. But what does it all mean? If only we could find the book that contains the rest of the story. Well, Christianity, friends, believes that the Bible is the book that contains the rest of the story. It's the story that explains our stories and orients us to the bigger story that we're all A part of. It's the true story that helps make sense of our personal stories. It tells us what the plot is. It tells us what the story's about and what our role is and even how it's all going to end, which were all really nice things to know if we could know them, right? Well, we say, well, let's look at the Bible, the Bible's overall story. And one of the things that the Bible tells us is that there is an author to the story that we're in. The Bible's claim is that the author of the story is great, and he's good, and he's loving, and he's the source of all that is good and beautiful and true. And so what we're going to do in this series is we're going to look at this story, and we're going to see how it really does help explain and make sense of the stories that we're in. Because, man, if it's true that the Bible story is true and it makes sense of our stories, man, that's incredibly helpful because it gives us insight into where we came from (laughs) and why we are here. And that is helpful, is it not? And so we're going to kick off this series by uh, looking at the beginning of the story, which is where you should begin. Anytime you're looking at a story. And so we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1. And so if you have your Bibles or you want to pull it up on your phone, just go there, Genesis 1. And, uh, you know, I know it's kind of hard for us. We've got short attention spans. But I'm going to read a giant chunk of this for us all in one sitting because I think it's going to be helpful for us to keep the entire passage in front of us during this time together. And so if you try to try to pay attention, try to uh, focus here and uh We'll read all the way through Genesis 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 3, all right? So let's, uh, let's read this. I have the words up here on the screen for you to follow along as well. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. I wondered if there was going to be lightning right when I said that, but there wasn't. Man, okay. And then God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let this separate the waters uh, from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening. And there was morning the second day. Now, quick tidbit here. If, if this is literal 24-hour days, which I'll get to in a minute, this is uh, a little com- comedic humor here, but uh, this would be the second day in the Jewish calendar. And uh, so that would make Sunday the first day, then make Monday the second day. Uh, notice on Monday, the second day is the only day that God does not say it was good. So right from the beginning, <laughs> Monday's not some good. So, you know, just, just know that. no God feels you on that. All right. Verse 9, and God said Let the waters under heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so, and God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas and God saw that it was good. And verse 11, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 13, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. Verse 14, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the water swarms according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. And you shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. Behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested in the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. All right. That was a lot right there. Okay, we want to spend some time fleshing this out. Now, before we jump into the passage, though, uh, let me just take a quick aside and, and address kind of the, the, the big uh, evolving elephant in the room, if you will, all right? Because so you read this and you think, hey, okay, how am I supposed to really believe that the Bible is trustworthy and that it's reliable and that it's the story that explains all of our stories and all, all this stuff? It's Right from the very beginning, if right off the bat, it seems to contradict science, You know, like, are we really supposed to think that this is literal 24-hour days? And if so, then many of you might think, "Now I'm going to just write this off right from the back. Well, so let me me address that real quick. And I don't have time to get into a lot of it, but I'll tell you what's been really helpful for me personally is to know that throughout the centuries, there have been Christians who have seen this passage and understood it as saying that God created everything in six literal 24-hour days. And there have been Christians throughout the centuries who have read the exact same passage and derived from it that God didn't create everything in six literal 24-hour days. And these people have a high view of Scripture, and and see it as authoritative and all that stuff, but they they arrive in two different places. And you might say, okay, well, why is that? And it's helpful, to again, just to reiterate, they come to their conclusion by studying this passage and yet arrive in two different places places. So okay, so why is that? Well, let me tell you. Re- one reason why is because there's uh, there's you know, different views on how to interpret the Hebrew word Yom, which is we translate day, that some Christians interpret that to mean literal 24-hour days and some believe that this word is better be interpreted as being a period of time unspecified. So it could be 24-hour days, it could be, you know, billions of years. And so there's there's ambiguity there on how to interpret this word. There's also two different people, two different camps that land one 24-hour day. Some uh, where this could be not speaking of a 24-hour day, and that comes out of whether they uh, how they understand the literary g- genre of this passage. All right, so some uh, see this as, uh, as historic narrative prose, and they see this is just God telling us exactly how he made things, and it's, it's historic narrative, it's listed out, and therefore they would say this is literal 24-hour day. And then there are many others, and I'll just be honest with you, this is the camp that I fall in, that see this as being poetry, that Genesis 1 is, is, is poetry in nature, and it has all the signs of Hebrew poetry, the reputi- repetition, tons of repetition here, the parallelism, there's a ton of parallelism found here. And so they'd say that this was never meant to be a you know, exact rendering of everything that happened, but that it was a figurative poetic telling of the truth that God created everything. But you can't push too far on the details of what's said here because it's supposed to be poetry. Anyways, that's how people look at this and arrive at two different places. And here's my point in saying that. There's ambiguity here on how to interpret this passage when it comes to whether things were made in a literal 24-hour day period of time or over perhaps billions of years. And the reason that there is ambiguity here is because, hear this, this is important, this passage was not written to be a scientific textbook on how God created everything. That's not the purpose of this passage. That was not the author's original intent. This passage was given to us in scripture to answer bigger and actually more important questions. That being, where did we come from and what is our purpose? And so, though this passage does tell us something very important about how we got here, namely that God created us, there is ambiguity in how to understand what exactly that process was. And we want you to know here at Midtown Church, we hold that answer with a real open hand. And so we have people all over our church in different places where they land as far as when it comes to, you know, the the process, literal 24-hour days or long periods of time involving evolution, not involving evolution. That's okay. That's not the main point. And so we don't die on that hill, but we say, hey, what is the more important point that is spoken to here in this passage? And that's what we want to spend our time with this morning. Namely, where did we come from and why are we here? Or perhaps, better put, who did we come from? And so let's dive into that right here. First, first big point, who did we come from or who did everything come from? And this passage tells us that the answer to that question is God, all right? We came from God. In fact, uh, God's name is mentioned 35 times in the verses that we read, which should clue us in on the fact that God is the main character in the Bible's story, all right? And because he's the main character, right from the onset of the Bible story, we have lots of insight into what God is like because it's helping us understand and be introduced to the main story. For example, we learn here that God is eternal. God is eternal. That for in order for God to create the heavens and the earth in the beginning, God had to be around before the beginning, right? So he's the one who's eternal. He's the one where everything came from, that God alone has no beginning, and everything else finds its grounding in God, finds its origin and beginning in God. Second thing we learn here is that God is creative right? I mean, is this not amazing? Whether this is historic narrative prose or this is poetry, everything we see in this is that everything finds its source in God, that God created everything, that God is incredibly creative, I don't know if y'all saw, but like it was, I think it was last summer, like Twitter just got, like, many people on Twitter just started like, posting all these uh, creation accounts on God creating different animals. Did you see any of these? <laughs> I, w- I read way too many of them. But um, <laughs> I want to share a couple of them for you. I knew I could get a sermon illustration out of it, so here it is. Um, some of my favorites were this. God, uh, here's God creating bees. Hey, let's put a needle on its butt and make its puke delicious. God creating a horse. Let's make a sexy donkey. <laughs> God creating spiders. Let's give it eight eyes and eight legs and a butt rope. I <laughs> had uh, too much fun with that. All right. But guys, creation just screams of God's Creativity. I just love that about God. Next thing we, we can see from this is that we learn that God is powerful, you know, that He's mighty, that everything that is came from Him, that He speaks and creation comes into being. The refrain that's repeated again and again is God said and it was so, and God said and it was so, and God said and it was so. He's powerful, He's mighty. We also learn here that God is not chaotic, but that he's orderly, that he's purposeful. And when God speaks, creation goes from chaos to order. At first the earth was formless and empty, but he speaks and there's light and there's sea and there's sky and there's fish and there's birds. That when God speaks, order is created. I love that about our God. But perhaps... The most incredible thing we learn about God here in this passage is that right from the beginning of the story, we learn that God is love, that God is love. Now, you're going to have to look closely, you try to follow me to see this. It's not as clear as the other things I just mentioned, but it is certainly there. So follow me here, right? Because at verse 1, we're told that uh, in the beginning, you know, there was God, in the beginning, God. And then in verse 2, we're told that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And the word translated here for hovering is this beautiful word that was uh, used to describe a mother bird hovering over the nest of her her young. And it's this very intimate uh, word, very intimate image. And then, so we have verse 1, there's God. Verse 2, we have the Spirit of God mentioned in in the creation account. And then in verse 3, we're told this, and God said... Let there be light, and there was light. Now, notice he doesn't just—you know—he doesn't just make the light, right? He speaks the light into existence. The light is made through his word. That, uh, and so in the book of John in the New Testament the author John picks up on that theme and expands upon it. And what he says is really remarkable. Here's what he says in John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And this part of the Bible makes it clear that the Word of God is the second person in the Trinity the Son of God, Jesus the Christ, which means that right from the first three verses of the Bible, we're given a pretty big clue about the Trinitarian nature of God. Of course, the Bible's you know, teaching on the Trinity is uh, mysterious and, and, and challenging, right? The doctrine of the Trinity is this, that God is one God, eternally existent, and three persons, who know and love one another perfectly and eternally, that God is no more fundamentally uh, one than he is three and no more fundamentally three than he is one. And again, right from the beginning, the Bible story, we, we see this hinted at. God mentioned in verse one, the Spirit mentioned in verse two, God speaks the word, through the word, everything's created. John tells us that's God the Son mentioned in verse three. This Trinitarian nature of God. Now, you might hear that and think, okay, all right, well, that's, you know, that's interesting and, and, and rather uh, confusing, right? Uh, but what's the point? Well, here's the point. Before the creation of the world, there was a God, and God is not a unipersonal, lonely God, but he's a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's one God, but three persons who has forever existed as a community, enjoying relationship, together before creating the world and that means before anything else there was love there was love in fact not just any kind of love but in john 17 we see god the son jesus praying to the father and what he says in this prayer gives us a peek into the nature of the relationship and the loving relationship that exists within the trinity even from eternity past. Here's what he says John 17, verse 4. I glorified you on earth, Jesus says, talking to the Father, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You hear this? Like, here we get a picture of how from eternity past, before the creation of the world, the Father, Son, We're glorifying each other. And to glorify the other doesn't just mean that they loved each other, but it speaks of a specific kind of love. See, to glorify another means to honor and to, like, bow down before. It's an amazing word. It means to bestow honor simply because you find them beautiful, honorable, and valuable in and of themselves, not based on what they can do for you. And here in this prayer we get a peek in the tr- into the Trinity, and we learn that each person in the Godhead is others oriented, putting the others first, loving and honoring them. That there is an others first orientation within the very heart of God. The Father, Son, and Spirit, each centering on the others, adoring and serving them. And because the Father, Son, and Spirit are giving glorifying love, to one another, hear this, God is infinitely and profoundly happy. The God is infinitely and profoundly happy. I mean, just think about this. Like when I met Krista for the first time, when I saw her for the first time, I should say, then I knew I had to meet her. Krista is my wife, if you didn't know that. So when I saw her for the first time, I just had to meet her. And then when I met her, I just grew and grew in my adoration for her. I mean, I just loved spending time with her. But you can imagine how I felt when I found out that she felt the exact same way about me. I mean, that was just the best. I mean, this person that I would do anything for and I find out that she feels the exact same way about me, I was like, this is, doesn't get better than this. Well, friends, that's what's existed within the heart of God, within the Trinity, the Godhead, from eternity past. That the Father loves the Son and the Spirit would do anything for them. And the Son is saying, I love you, Father and Spirit, I'll do anything for you. And Spirit saying likewise to the Father and the Son that the Godhead, there's this perfect loving relationship, constantly glorifying and putting the other before Himself. He's profoundly happy. And here's what this means that means that God the one who created this world, the author of life, he did not create us because he was lonely, but because he's loving. That he did not create us in order to get joy, but in order to give it. That he did not create us from a lack of something that he didn't already have, but to give us something to enjoy only found in him. And that the source, he being the source of everything that's been created means that we find our source in him. And that tells us something about reality. And tells us something about the nature of relationships and the primacy of love, does it not? And just con- just contrast this with the, you know, the primary secular thought of our day. That, you know, we're here by accident, that there is no God, we're here by accident, and that, you know. It's it's all about power and violence and survival of the fittest to where we are here. You hear that worldview and you compare that to the Christian worldview coming out of the Bible. It, is it not a stark contrast that we're here on purpose and we're here from a God who loved us and the primacy of love beats the primacy of power that love came first. That also should give us input into how relationships are supposed to work. So if we came from the heart of this relational God and the relationship consists of putting others ahead of yourself, then is it no wonder that our relationships break down as a result of us trying to put ourselves ahead of the other? Doesn't that make sense of what we see and how relationships work? Yeah, it does make sense. Because all relationships came first sourced out of the one true, perfect, original relationship. Where they're always putting the other first. And our relationships thrive when we follow that model. Because it's the way things work. Yes, that's who we came from. This is who we came from. There's so much more that can be said and a lot more things that, impl- that, you know, I draw out the implications. But let me just move on to the second big question that's answered in this passage. That is, why we are here? Why we are here? And the answer to that, uh, to that question is given in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Let me read it again. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. All right, so this tells us that we are made in, in the image of the triune God, right? Did you pick up on the plural language here? Let us, let us create man in our image and our likeness. So we're made in the image of the triune God. Now here's what this means. That we, uh, uh, we when it says image, which is just this just rich theme that carries it out through all of the Bible. When it says image, that God makes us in his image. That means that God made us to reflect and represent him. Guys, I don't want you to miss this. This is, like, incredibly important. According to the Bible's story, according to God's word, here's your purpose in life, your overarching purpose in life. What am I here for? God says, you were created to reflect and represent me. That's why I created you. You know, let's just pretend that uh, I had any kind of... um, uh, ability to, uh, to uh, paint at all, <laughs> but if I were to paint an image of you uh, and it was an accurate reflection of what you look like, then uh, anyone for centuries who views this painting will know what you look like because they're going to see this representation of you, right? Well, God says, hey, I created you human beings to reflect my image, and we know not his physical image, for God is spirit, but to reflect his character, his goodness, his justness, his generosity, his creativity, his love. He says, I've made you like a canvas or like a, a mirror, and you are capable of reflecting my character. And if you reflect my character accurately, then you will represent me to the whole world, and the whole world will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And where there's knowledge of the glory of the Lord, there's peace, there's shalom. That's what I created you for, God said, right here at the beginning, when he was creating us. Okay, there's tons of implications of this, but for sake of time, let me just hit on two. The first one is this. Because we're made in the image of God, we have great value. This means, friends, that you have great worth And so does every other human being. Incredible worth, for we are all made in the image of God. It doesn't matter what you've done or how low you've gone. You bear God's image. This is the biblical basis for ascribing a rock-solid, objective irreducible, uh, glory and significance, value and worth to every single human being, including yourself. You are valuable. You are of great worth. Every one of us is, and therefore we should treat everyone with dignity and respect. In fact, the entire sermon series that we just came from is founded on this the reason we should treat people who look differently, believe differently, or are orphaned or refugees with dignity and respect and love them and serve them is because we're all made in the image of God. In fact, for Martin Luther King Jr., this was a foundational argument for the modern civil rights movement. In his speech entitled The American Dream, he said this, The concept of the imago Dei, the image of God, is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected, and gives every human being a uniqueness, a worth, and it gives dignity, and we must not ever forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a bass black is significant on God's keyboard, precisely because every man is made in the image of God. I love that. See, Christianity believes in the doctrine of the image of God and therefore can say to people, grounded in ultimate reality, that you are valuable, that you have dignity, that you have worth, and therefore your rights should never be trampled on and you have a value that can never be denied. The second implication of this is that uh, we all have a great purpose. Purpose. That because we're made in the image of God, we have a great purpose. That we were created to image God, to reflect his character and to represent him to creation. That's our purpose, and it's a grand purpose. In fact, in his book, After Virtue, the philosopher Alasdair MacIntyre argues this. He says, you can never determine whether something is good or bad unless you know it's telos. So he asks, for example, how can you tell whether a watch is a good one or a bad one? You have to know what its purpose is. If I try to hammer a nail with my watch and it breaks, should I complain that this is a bad watch? Of course not. It wasn't made to hammer and nails. That is not its purpose. Its purpose is to tell you the time at a glance. The same principle should apply to humanity. How can you say that someone is a good person or a bad person unless you know what they are designed for? what their purpose is. Now, if you say, well, you know, I just don't know if there is a God and I don't know if we have any kind of purpose, then, that, that, then you're you know, entitled to that thought. But I do want to point out to you that if that's your line of thinking, then it's irrational for you to ever make a judgment on whether someone is a good person or a bad person or doing something right or doing something wrong. How can you know? If you don't know what their purpose is or if we don't have a purpose, then there is no way to make any kind of moral judgment based on good or bad. But here, based on what God's word says and the story right from the very beginning, if you believe there is a God and he created you for a purpose, then you have the basis by which you can determine if you are good or not. Because it depends on whether or not you are fulfilling your purpose. And here the author of the story, the, you know, the author of life, says that he created us for a grand purpose, to image him, to represent him, to reflect him. But if we sit under that thought for too long, friends, it will crush us, will it not? See, because if we're honest with ourselves, each of us must admit that we have failed To perfectly do what we were created to do. That no one has perfectly reflected and represented God. And as the Bible puts it later on in the book of Romans. That we have all fallen short of the glory of God. That we fall short because we find ourselves in this story. Where we're invited up into a self-giving, completely loving relationship. With the God of the universe. But if we're honest And we'd admit admit that there are many days when we're uninterested in even talking to this God, much less giving our whole lives to him. And we fall short because the essence of a great relationship is abdicating self, it's deferring self and putting others first. But most of the time, I concern myself with how I can get others to do what I want them to do. And we fall short because as we learn that we're made in the image of God and therefore we're all valuable. And yet as the book of James says, but no one, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. And with it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the image of God. And we so often disrespect, undervalue or speak poorly of people made in the image of God. See, we fall short, friends, of the glory of God. Which should cause us to ask, in light of this story, what kind of story are we in? I mean, is this a tragedy? This good God created all of this, and he created us with this grand purpose, and yet we failed to meet this purpose? Is this a tragedy? And I... I hope to use that in a cheesy way as a little bit of a hook to say, come back to <laughs> the rest of the series because we're going to see how the rest of the story plays out. And at the same time, I don't want to just you know, leave us hanging. And so we're going to end this time, end this morning as we always do by taking communion. And when we take communion, what we are remembering is the most selfless, giving, giving, Act in human history where God the Son, Jesus Christ, left heaven, came to earth, and took on our physical image, the image of a man. Philippians 2 talks about how he was emptying himself of deity, he became a human, and that he even became a servant in order to come. And live the life that we were created to live. A life that perfectly reflects God and represents him to creation. But in Jesus, in doing so, perfectly living that life that we were supposed to live, he did his life didn't end with exaltation, but instead being crucified on the cross in our place. That he was killed by the very people that he came to save, but he died voluntarily. He died willingly, because he knew that the only way that we, these image bearers of God that have failed to bear God's image perfectly, he said, I know the only way that I can restore that is by dying in their place. And so he died. And then he rose again. And in his death and resurrection, now we through faith in Him, can be restored, redeemed, and and reborn into the family of God. And when that happens, not only are our sins forgiven, our sin for falling short of the glory of God is forgiven, but also, friends, we are gifted His righteousness and His Spirit And that this all comes to us through what Christ has accomplished for us. And when we believe in faith in him, then not only are we forgiven, but now we actually are restored to where we are recreated to be able to fulfill God's original purpose for us. We now can bear the image of God through his power. We can represent him. We can reflect him. So that we could be commanded in Ephesians chapter 5, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. This is what Christ has accomplished for us. Our good God, our loving God, who came after us to restore us. This is the story of the Bible. It's incredible, and it's true. And so let's worship him for it. I going to invite you guys during the time of worship to come and take communion here in the back, to take the bread to take the cup, to remember Christ's body broken for you and his blood spilled for you so that you could be restored back to him if you've never placed your faith in Christ alone for your forgiveness, I want you to use this time to just stay where you are and reflect and pray. If this is true, this is amazing. This is the source of reality, our loving God, and this is how he has loved you. I pray that even today you would believe that. Tell him that you trust he's your Savior. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We love you for loving us in a way that we do not deserve, for we have fallen short of your glory, of the purpose for which you created us. And yet, God, you did not reject us, but you came after us to redeem us and to restore us back to you. This is the amazing story of your scripture. You give us your word that we know that this is true, and we can know what you're like, and we can know what we're here for. God, may we live in light of this truth for your glory, God, and the good of all creation, we pray these things. Amen.